Um, I'm going to take you back to uh, Christmas Eve night when uh, I taught you a couple words. Might be a few of you here that still remember them. And you'll see them up on the screen again. The words are kadash mikvah. And I want you to see the definition for these again. And if you weren't here, you're going to learn them again. Kadash mikvah. A fresh new thing is the word kadash. And mikvah is something waited for, a confidence, an abiding, and a gathering together, an expectancy. So kadash mikvah in English is new hope. New hope, kadash mikvah. Now, the reason I want to bring this out to you is because in Hebrew, there's eight or nine different words for the word mikvah, or for the word hope, excuse me. And mikvah is one of them. This particular word mikvah applies specifically to us, this church, new hope, because of the definition, something that we're expecting. Let me clarify it for you this way. Hope in hope is nothing. Hope with expectancy, with a sense of abiding, with a confidence that the things that we study, that we believe, that allows us to gather our resolve and have real hope, hope in Jesus Christ. That's kadash mikvah, new hope. Hope not in hope, but hope in one that we're abiding for, that we're waiting for, okay? Now, I just wanted to clarify that for you to make, make sure you understand that because what we're looking at today in the book of Revelation reminds us that we have Kadash Mikvah. Let me do just a little minor review with you. I'm just gonna warn you up front. I am gonna wear you out today. I guarantee it. This, <laughs> oh, the groan. You know the verses that are coming in the Greek and Hebrew words. But it's, this is one of the most difficult passages of the seven churches, the church in Thyatira. And so there's just so much information to take in in order to digest what we're going to get to. Some of what we're going to look at isn't going to make sense to you until the end of the message today when I put a bow tie on it. But gather in as much as you can the resolve to follow along these different pieces. So here's a, a quick review of where we've been at. Revelation chapter 1. John saw Jesus, a picture of the risen Son of God, an incredible description in Revelation chapter 1 of the risen King of Kings. And in Revelation chapter 2, we step into the study of the churches. We studied first Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. What was unique about each of those churches? That they were all under the rule, under the heel of Caesar and the gods that were worshipped in those towns, gods with small g, and the people who were in that town that were believers were oppressed to the point where they couldn't actually carry out business, to the point where Jesus had to encourage them, saying, take heart, I know you're in tough circumstances. Remember he said to one of the churches, you're right in the very abode of Satan. You're right where his throne is at. To another church he said, there's a synagogue of Satan right in your town. So these people were dealing with very tough, difficult circumstances. In this church that we're looking at today, you're going to see that there's a progressive worsening. From the church in Ephesus that lost its first love, by the time you get to this church, Thyatira, you see a degrading of the behavior of Christians. People who have actually chased after false doctrine. They've allowed false teachers into their midst and they've become compromised. So what we're gonna look at this morning is a command from Christ to hang on tight to the things that we've learned, the things that we know. 
I had this verse in the book of Jude just kind of wrestling in my mind over the last week, so I want to share it with you to frame where we're headed. This comes from Jude chapter 1 and verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. What does that mean? Why would we need to contend earnestly? When I think of a contender, I think of a boxer. World championship boxers, golden gloves champions, somebody that's duking it out, they're contending. A contender, we call them. Why are they contending earnestly for the faith? You're gonna see as we move through this teaching on this church of Thyatira, they've got something that they have to fight for. This is perhaps the most difficult church to interpret. Let me give you some background on it. Uh, Archaeologically, we know that this particular town, Thyatira, was located about 35 miles inland from the ocean. And it was known for several reasons. One, it was a manufacturing community, and I'll get to that in just a minute. The other thing is it was a military outpost. This is where garrisons of troops were established in order to protect Pergamum. Pergamum was a city of a quarter million people. So Thyatira was located on a road outside of Pergamum in which they would be the first line of defense in case of an attack. So you can imagine what took place in that town. These people knew that eat, drink, tomorrow for, uh, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. These are the people who are actually facing the enemies firsthand. So that's why it's a military outpost. But we also know that it's a manufacturing community. If you read about Lydia in the New Testament, Lydia was one of the ladies that Paul led to Jesus Christ and she was from the town of Thyatira. What do we know about Lydia? She was a person who worked with linen fabrics. She was a dyer, D-Y-E-R, of purple goods, linen goods. This town actually produced coppersmiths, bronze smiths, bakers, carpenters, linen workers, and all of these individuals shipped their goods out to the Roman Empire. But in order to be a participant in working within this city, you had to belong to the union. You had to be a guild member. Otherwise, you were not allowed to participate. And so these people find themselves in a situation in which they're living in a town in which there's much manufacturing taking place. As a matter of fact, let me show you a quote from an archaeologist who discovered an inscription. Large quantities of scarlet cloth are sent weekly to Smyrna. That comes from the first century when this archaeologist discovered this written on a piece of paper. They began to put the pieces together and they realized that this was an export town. Thyatira was shipping out to the world these things that they were making. They were so dedicated to this union that they belonged to, this guild, trade guild, that they actually named a god over their city by the name of Apollos. Perhaps you've heard his name mentioned before, Apollo or Apollos. They exalted him so high, God with a small g, that they actually minted their coins with his image on it. Take a look at the picture up on the screen and you'll see an image of Apollos, God with a small g, that's his image. Now think about this, in America, we have dollar bills and coinage that says, in God we trust. These people had the picture of their God actually put on their coins. So we have a church, Thyatira Church, in the midst of a community where their coins actually have the pictures of a God on it. They have to participate in these temples 
in which they celebrate these gods with the trade unions or they can't do business, and it's a military outpost. That sets the background for this verse that we're about to step into. Revelation 2 and verse 18, if you have your Bibles. If not, there's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take one of those with you today when you leave. We really would like you to own a Bible, so feel free to take that. Revelation 2.18, I should mention the handouts that you have. Um, again, I filled in the blanks here for you in case you miss any along the way, and they'll be on the, uh, in front of the podium after the service if you need to grab that to fill any in. Revelation 2.18, and this is how it starts out. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. Now those of you that have been in the study all along for these first few weeks, the first six, five weeks that we spent in this, should, your little antennae should be going off right away. When you see this definition, Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. There's a significant change that takes place. You might want to circle in your Bible there. In Revelation chapter one, it said, son of man. But here it says, son of God. Now when you see the difference in scripture, what is the difference when Jesus calls himself the son of man and when Jesus calls himself the son of God? As son of man, he used that title when he wanted us to know that he could identify with us. He can identify with those who belong to him. He's lived our life. He's been part of this world. He's experienced the kind of toil and pressure that you experience. But son of God means something entirely different. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to flip over into the book of Daniel on chapter seven. It's not gonna be up on the screen, so you're not gonna see it up there. Daniel chapter seven and verse nine. I just want you to read this so you really get this imagery in your head of who this son of God is. This is an ancient description, and Daniel was having an experience in which he saw the throne room of God. Now listen to this as I read this description to you. Daniel chapter seven and verse nine. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Notice these last two sentences. The court sat and the books were opened. What's the setting in which a court would be seated and the book is opened? A courtroom judgment. So when you see son of God, you have to say if you're the church in Thyatira, uh-oh, this isn't the one who identifies with us. This is the judge. This is the son of God. So Jesus here is identified as the son of God because he's coming to this church as a judge. And what does he come with? Eyes like a flame of fire. That's what it says. It didn't say his eyes are on fire, and it doesn't say there's little flames burning in his eyes. It said, like a flame of fire, meaning we discovered when we looked at this a few weeks ago, he sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. There's nothing disguised. There's nothing covered. Nothing hidden at all, whatsoever. And then it says his feet are like burnished bronze. And what is that? Like burnished bronze. It doesn't say his feet are bronze. 
glowing. And we remember from a few weeks ago, the picture of that is the judge, the one who comes trampling out sin. That's always the picture when the feet are of bronze in Scripture. So we've got Son of God, courtroom, books opened, coming before them, eyes that see everything, feet that glow brilliantly, and ready to stamp out sin. And what does he say to them in verse 19? I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. I know you. I know you. I see you. And I understand in two stages it comes here. Your love and your faith are producing service and perseverance. This is a church that's busy. They're doing ministry. They're active in the community. They're loving each other. And what's significant about it? They're increasing in their growth. Their deeds of late are greater than at first. So they're not only improving, they're going by leaps and bounds. You're way ahead of where you were at the beginning. I know you. I see everything you're doing. And you love each other. And it's improving. That's to be commended. But like we talked about in the very first week, this is a performance review. And so here comes the other shoe. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. His eyes of fire see everything, and what does he see? I want you to see this Greek word. He sees something very specific about this congregation. Iao, iao, let be, permit, or leave alone. What is this congregation doing? They're tolerating Jezebel. They're iaoing her. See, what we have here is endorsement by acquiescence. They're not standing up against her. They're not standing up against this false teacher. They're allowing her to do the false teaching. And so therefore, Jesus lumps the whole church in and says, you iaho her. You're allowing her to be present in your midst and teaching false teaching. Now, why is the name Jezebel used? It's very doubtful that her name was actually Jezebel. She could have, but it'd be like naming a child Judas today. We wouldn't do that. We would know right away, a Judas? Why would they name a child Judas? Why would they name a child Jezebel? Everybody at this time knew who Jezebel was. Let me give you a little bit background on this if you're not familiar with it. King Ahab in the Old Testament, king of Israel, married a woman from another country, which was against God's command, married another woman by the name of Jezebel, and she was vile. She was so wicked. She corrupted the entire nation. She drew the nation of Israel away into Satan worship. So much so that there were prophets that slew themselves and cut themselves constantly in sacrifice to this God they called Baal, B-A-A-L. This Jezebel led people astray because of false teaching. Let me show you what God thinks of Jezebel. And come, this verse comes from 1 Kings. You can read this later yourself. 1 Kings 16.30. God's talking about Ahab and the king of Israel. 
Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who went before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. God says, the worst thing this guy did in his entire life is to marry this woman Jezebel. She was so corrupt and so wicked. As a matter of fact, I love reading some of the older theologians that lived in the 1700s and 1800s for their insights. I especially like the way they structure the English language. I want to share with you a quote from a theologian from the early 1800s. This is the way he wrote about her. In the long roll of human infamy, there is not a blacker name than that of Jezebel. Her name became the synonym of all that is debasing, symbolical of some self-important, self-constituted authority on religion, persecuting, haughtily vaunting claims of superior religious piety and theological intelligence. You think this guy likes her? No. When you think of Jezebel, you think of a woman who sold herself out to Satan. So what we find here is the spiritual counterpart to the Old Testament Jezebel. And Jesus names her by her character and calls her, she's a Jezebel. And Satan has no new bag of tricks here. This is just a repeat of the old things. Evidently, this woman is very, very powerful. And she has influenced this entire congregation. Let me show you, and if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to circle the word that appears in your scripture. It says, she teaches and leads. The very oldest manuscripts that we have available to us today, the word leads, you want to circle that. It actually means seduces. Now, to seduce someone, you have to draw them away with a plan, don't you? You don't just stumble into it. You think through, how am I going to do this? Look at the definition for the word seduce or deceives. Planao means to cause to roam from safety, truth, or virtue, to go astray, to deceive, to err, to seduce. So this woman came to this church with a plan to draw these people away, moving them from worshiping God to what you're going to discover in just a few minutes. I want you to note very specifically the progression of God's judgment. What does he say first? I gave her time but she does not want to repent. Literally, she doesn't want to come out of her behavior. I notice here that even the wickedest person has the opportunity to repent and get right with God, but she chooses not to. God does not hate what he's created. God loves everything that he's created, even the Jezebels, and he gave her time to repent, but she didn't move forward. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Jezebel's got time. She can leave the wicked life, but she chooses not to. And because of her actions, and especially note this, because of what she has done, the entire church is going to be judged. Jesus, the one who has bronze feet and eyes that see like flame, is coming to the entire body because they're allowing false teaching. No amount of love, no amount of good deeds, no amount of sacrifice compensates for false teaching. 
we could be the busiest church, loving everybody in the community, giving away everything that we have, but if we have false teaching, we stand in judgment of God. So doctrine has to be right up there at the very top. We have to avoid both extremes. What happened in Ephesus? Ephesus, they're really good about doctrine, but they rejected the love of Christ. This church, Thyatira, they're really good about love, but they're moving away from accurate doctrine. And so we've got a pendulum here that swings back and forth, and the church needs to find itself balanced. What did Paul write to the church in Ephesians? Ephesians 4.14 says this, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. That's the balance of a healthy church. Speak the truth in love. Let's teach the truth, but let's be gracious about it and how we do it. So what was this woman teaching? What was going on here in this church? This is speculation. I told you as we move through the book of Revelation, I would tell you when it's speculation and when I'm telling you that it's absolute, you can back it up with scripture. This is speculation. Apparently, there was a group in this region known as the Gnostics. You can still read about them today. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, the Gnostics. And what the Gnostics taught was that they embodied all truth that they were the ones who could show you the path to God. As a matter of fact, the word Gnosticism or Gnostics actually means full of knowledge. They exalted themselves. And apparently this woman had aligned herself with this group of teaching among the Gnostics that taught that since they had all the knowledge, they could point people to the true path to God. Now, if you're familiar at all with theology, you probably are familiar with the name William Barclay. William Barclay was a great theologian, and he did a lot of research on this town, Thyatira, especially this church. This is a quote from William Barclay's investigation of this area, and this is what he found about them. Guilds met frequently, and they met for a common meal. Such a meal was at least in part a religious ceremony. It would meet in a pagan temple, and it would begin with a libation to the gods, and the meal itself would largely consist of meat offered to idols. The position of the church meant that a Christian could not attend such a meal. Why? Here's the link with the unions. When people went because of part of their job, and understand, I have nothing against unions, okay? I just want to be clear about this. They called them trade guilds. We use the word union today. When the people participated with the union, and they had to do it, it's the only way you could get a license to live. They were supposed to go to this temple and worship at the temple by eating meals together, and after they had the meals together, they'd get drunk together, and they would commit all kinds of immorality. And they would say, it's as an offering to the God, small g, Apollos. And apparently, Jezebel was backing this up, saying, well, you've got to make a living. I mean, it's just business. God will understand. Have you ever had Satan whisper that in your ear? God understands. You cut the corner there. He won't mind. I mean, it's just business. So what we find here are people in an incredible predicament. They want to honor the king that they serve, and they've got this false teacher who's leading them astray. So what does Jesus say to them? 
Verse 22, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And when he said, I'm gonna throw her on a bed of sickness, you might want to note that in the original Greek manuscripts, of sickness didn't exist. That wasn't part of it. It was conjecture that was added later. I'm going to throw her onto a bed literally means I'm going to put her in hell. She's going to die as a result of this. It means death. And it doesn't mean death without punishment. It means the second death. I want to help paint a picture for you that will take us back into the Old Testament to understand this lake of fire, this death that God's speaking of. This comes from the book of Numbers and verse 16. You'll see it up on the screen. And this particular setting took place when Moses was dealing with some very ungodly men, people who had wandered away from God and they needed to be dealt with. This is what Moses said about them. Numbers 16, 29. If these men die the death of all men or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me, meaning common death, okay? But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, hell, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. So this deathbed that he's going to throw her on is the second death, the death of the lake of fire, eternal punishment. And then he says specifically, he's going to kill her children with pestilence. What does that mean? Well, that comes from an ancient Hebrew word. It takes us back to that same verse from Numbers. Kill her with death, her children, not meaning her little biological offspring, but her students, her disciples, those who are following her, those who are chasing after her teaching, those who have become corrupt. But Jesus says, unless they repent. Do you note the good news there? There's a chance for repentance, all of them. They have the chance to repent of their ways. God gives them an opportunity. But he follows it up by saying this, all the churches will know, meaning everyone is aware of this very vivid judgment that's taking place. Everyone who's got eyes to see is looking at this. All who are watching, because the Lord's watching, are going to see this take place. Now, Jesus does something really interesting here. He gets biological for just a minute. And he says, something, you're gonna love this, this definition that comes out. He says, he who searches the minds and the hearts. The word minds is actually the word kidney, okay? He's saying, I'm searching your kidneys. Why would he do that? Look at the definition for nephros. A kidney, plural figurative, the inmost mind or what's called the reins of the body. Because the ancients believed that everything that resided within your internal organs, especially your kidney, made up who you were emotionally. In other words, if your kidneys aren't working, you aren't feeling very good, okay? So they believed that the kidneys, the inmost part of your mind, everything developed from that thought process. So he says, your mind and your heart, I see you, I know everything about you. I search your mind and your hearts, I know you're chasing after this Jezebel. I'm gonna give you a chance to repent. But if not, all the churches are watching 
and they're going to see what takes place. The omniscient Lord has eyes to watch it all. So what does he say in verse 24? But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Who do not hold to the teaching, what does that mean? Those who have not allowed themselves not only to align with Jezebel, but who have come in contact with her. Literally, who have come near her. Now you think this might just be for the church in Thyatira. I will tell you there are churches all over the nation, all over the world, who are presenting false teaching about the path to God. They fail to declare that Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other path to God. I am the only way. And there's many churches that do not proclaim that today. There's many churches that go against other teachings of God's word. So what is written to the church in Thyatira is especially meaningful for us today when we live in an age of apostasy, false teaching. But Jesus said, the end will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So the false teaching that you see around is part of the end times progression. But we have to be aware of it, we have to see it. And so Jesus says, don't hold to this teaching. Stay away from it, don't even touch it. Because Satan is developing a counterfeit. Christ, anti-Christ. Meaning every time God has something good, Satan develops a counterfeit. So what you find here is counterfeit teaching that there's other paths to God. He uses a very strong word. A word that he uses is kratao, and it means hold fast. That's why it says that right there in the verse. It literally means with a grip that will not let up. Hold fast to the things that you've learned. Church, hold fast to the things you've learned about Joseph, about Abraham, about Jacob. What we're discovering through the book of Revelation, hold strong to it because you have the Kadash Mikvah. You have the new hope. You're the ones who are gonna be able to go out and tell the world about this new hope. But if you don't hold fast to it, if you don't kritao it, you have nothing. That's why we don't just hope in hope. We have hope of expectancy that what we read here is actually going to happen. So this excellence that we seek in Christ requires a really tight grip, a firm grip. This is how he closes it out in verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. Now, when you read that, you want to go, what? I don't, I don't get it. What? Let's do that one again, okay? So let's read it again. Verse 26. He who overcomes, we know what that is, a nikao, we've been discovering that. And he who keeps my deeds until the end, meaning holds tight, kratao, to him I will give authority over the nations. Okay, let's stop right there. What does that mean? When Jesus returns at the second coming, after the seven years of tribulation, at the second coming, when he sets up his earthly kingdom, he sets up rulers over the world. Those who will rule with him 
in his millennial kingdom, 1,000 year reign. He's telling you, if you hold firmly to the end, if you kratao, if you hang in there, if you don't chase after the Jezebels, that you will reign with him. That's what he's saying. I will give authority over the nations. What nations? The nations here on earth for a thousand years. And then it says, you're going to rule them with a rod of iron. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? A rod of iron. Rule comes from the word that we have for the word shepherd, meaning to tend over the flock. Rule over from the word pomene, pom, I messed this up in the first service. Poimene. Okay, any Greek students in here? Poimene. Oh, okay. To tend as a shepherd or figuratively to supervise as in like feeding cattle to rule over. So when Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom for the thousand year reign and those who are nakao, who are overcomers, rule alongside him, you will rule as shepherds tending over a flock. But then he throws this part in here about breaking pottery. What's going on there with that? As the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, meaning that during the first reign, the millennial kingdom, there will still be sin on the earth. There will be those who will wander away from what the king has set up. And those who have the rod of iron will tend over those who follow Christ faithfully, but those who rebuke and chase away will be shattered as with a rod of iron, like a potter breaks a vessel. So what we find here is a twofold prophecy. You get to rule, but you rule with authority, and the authority comes from Jesus Christ, from the king. So, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. As theologians go many different directions on that particular passage, the morning star, specifically what I believe it means is Jesus is talking about himself. That he says, I'm going to give you the glory that I share with myself. Actually, it comes from Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. There are some individuals who believe that refers to the rapture of the church. If you want to talk about that after the service, I'll be happy to chat with you about that, where that comes from. But literally, what I think he's saying here is, I'm sharing my glory with you. The glory that I have from the Father, I will give you the morning star. You'll get to share it with me. So here's the last verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I look very closely at that. I know when it gets this late, it's tempting to start reaching for your car keys, so don't do that. Think, look at what it says. He, singular, you personally, who has an ear, singular, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, all of us. He's speaking to all of us. He wants us all to hear this. You can be nekao. You can be overcomers. And if, we, if we're overcomers, what have we learned? We've learned that if we live in the very abode of Satan, just like these churches, if we live where his throne is set up, we may hear the craziest of teachings. We may hear people that are way out in left field. But if we hold tight, if we kratao to the things that we know to be true from the word of God, this is what he promised us from Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. 
Revelation 2.11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 2.17, to him who overcomes, I will give a new name. And this promise, he who overcomes, to him I will give authority over the nations. We get stuff. We get to be with the king of kings and rule with him. So why did I start out in the book of Jude talking about contending for the faith, fighting earnestly, duking it out? Because there are those who are seeking to steal it away, to lead God's people astray. Look at the definition for the word contend, and I'm gonna let you go. I told you I was gonna wear you out today. Apagonizomai, this is what it means, to struggle for, earnestly contend. So let me read Jude to you just before we pray. Jude 1, behold, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Verse four, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's the danger. The ultimate goal of the false teachers is to lead you away from Jesus Christ because it's the work of Satan. That's why we contend for it. That's why we spend all the time that we do looking so deeply into these things. That's why the church has to be at peak operating performance in order to handle the things in the book of Revelation. Because you're his witnesses. You are the light. You get to carry this message out to the world. It's a big task, isn't it? It's a big task, isn't it? It's a big task. So we need to be well-equipped. Okay, you can reach for your car keys now because I'm going to pray, all right? <laughs> Father, we are before you as your children, those who name the name of Christ, earnestly desiring that we would represent you well. And Father, I would be the first to admit, it is so easy to see things that are attractive to the world that draw us away from you, that you take adamant stands against. So the first thing I ask for, for this congregation, for the men and women, the boys and girls, the students in this room, that you just fence us in with such a resolve that we will not depart from the truth to the left or to the right, but that we would be straight arrows. God, that we would go after your heart. That's what we desire. None of us want to see our light extinguished like it was threatened to other churches. We want to be a strong witness for you. So Father, take these things that we have learned this morning and as we go out to spend time with friends, we go to dinner, we go with family members, all the things that we'll get involved with, Father, keep reminding us, just as you did through communion this morning, you bought us at a great price and we belong to you and therefore, we need to contend for the things that we know to be true. God, bury that deep in our hearts. 
We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our soon coming King. Amen.